this is Idiot Mystic, and I'm with Deborah Charns. Uh, hi. Hi there. Um, we haven't really spoken for more than a minute before this, so um, I guess instead of going through all the things that I would have the the opinion of you that I would have come to from reading book reviews and reading your uh, blog posts and things like that or stuff from a few years ago how would you introduce yourself now boy of course I have a 300 word bio that tells it all but in terms of how I introduce myself I guess I am a human that is trying to do my best and I am trying to um, care for myself, for other people, for other animals, and for our planet. One of the things that is really important to me is the word ahimsa, which means do no harm, nonviolence. And unfortunately, there is so much harm and violence in this world. And so any little itty bitty thing I can do, I'm hoping that it's helping. And I guess since we went, I'm glad we didn't go the the normal route of the 300 word bio because it would be it would be a good explanation. But I guess since the first thing you said was non-harm or non-violence, the society that I'm, I guess, I live in Arizona and I grew up in Pakistan and I don't know where you are right now. And I've read that you've traveled pretty much everywhere. It seems I could, um, how it seems to be against the social structure that we are living in today to even promote nonviolence, because that's almost like promoting non-competition to some people. That is so sad. <laughs> and um, it's interesting because I view things, of course, even though I have, I haven't traveled all over the world, I haven't been to Pakistan, but, um, but I've, I've lived in different countries, primarily in the Spanish speaking worlds. And unfortunately, I find the United States in particular and again, maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, again, I'm, of course, focused on the U.S. because that is what raised me. But I find that the United States and particularly the younger people are so focused on competition. We are taught, you know, that, you know, you have to beat out everyone else and you have to be number one and look out for number one. And unfortunately, there are so many things wrong with this world, and much of it comes from a competition. And what I look at all the time is people refer to advancement of our society and our culture. And again, I'm talking about in all countries. And to me, unfortunately, that advancement oftentimes is much more violent and much more harmful in so many ways, especially to our planet. 
And it drives me crazy sometimes in terms of how advanced our society is and how we are ruining our planet. And I mentioned I haven't been to Pakistan, but I have been to India three times. And the first time that I went, and it could be because of where I was, but the first time I went was, um, I don't know, maybe the year 2010. And to me, everything was like paradise and idyllic. The next time I went, what hurt me so much was to see all of the waste and garbage that was everywhere. And the third time I went, what hurt me even more was to see all that, but to see the sacred cows that were living amongst basically the, the huge garbage dumps from our advanced society waste. And, and course, sorry, no, no, you go on. Well, um, I lived in South America. My daughter was born in South America and, you know, I, we used cloth diapers and we didn't have anything pretty much non-disposable. And if we wanted to buy where I lived, we didn't have potable drinking water. So we would have to boil our water. And if I bought a bottle of water, I would have to bring a bottle, like a glass bottle to exchange for another bottle of water. That might be considered a pain in the neck, but at least it's not adding to all the garbage that we have everywhere. And again, it's all over the world from what I see now. I guess it's it's interesting because I I share your opinion completely. Like I you I could be saying this and it would I would think it's valid like everything that's but it seems like um if we said this to someone they would I guess why is the planet or this seems like a lofty subject I guess. Like, it seems to people like, wait, why are you talking about saving the planet? You can't save yourself. You can't pay your rent. You are wondering what you're going to do with the rest of your life. So you should be focused on being placated in the short term with these disposable items and the culture of consumption. And the. I guess it seems like there would need to be something that causes a human being to think that there's a higher uh higher purpose than self-preservation and survival well it all does come back to our health and happiness if we are living and again you know i i can see this um or give an example the three times that i was in india and the first time where I was and when I was there, the air seemed very clear. The second time it was very bad and I came back with respiratory issues. I've never had respiratory issues my entire life. The third time I went, I wore a, a mask, like a COVID mask the whole time and I was fine. But the point is, if we are ruining our planet, we are ruining our health and happiness and I realize that most people are just out for convenience and hey, I like convenience as well. But 
if you look especially at the fast food industry, and I actually worked, I've worked in marketing communications my entire life. And at one point, my sole client, it was my dedicated client. I'm not going to mention the name of it, but it was a major fast food company. And even back then, this would have been 40 years ago. And I would not consume anything from their, their products, even though they were 100% my client, all my income was coming from them. And I still, you know, about 40 years ago said, I'm sorry, you know, I'm, I won't eat this food. And I just recently read a book by Michael Pollan, P-O-L-L-A-N, and it's called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And on social media, I put a lot of memes, call-outs from some of the statistics that he found. And they were sickening. And they were all about in the United States. And we always talk about, at least me, because I'm a health, I'm a holistic health coach. And so we always talk about the SAD, S-A-D, American diet. And SAD is for standard American diet. And it is so sad <laughs> in terms of what people are eating, how they are eating, in terms of, you know, the fast food um, mentality, you know, the eating on the run, everything is pre-prepared and what they're made out of is shocking. So just as an example, Michael Pollan in his book talks about how he had a chem lab analyze all different products from McDonald's. And they were all basically made out of corn products because in the United States, the USDA, or I don't know who in the government, gives corn growers huge subsidies. So there is a surplus of corn and something has to be done with the corn. So they make the corn syrup, they make corn solids, they do all sorts of things with the corn. The vast majority of the corn is also used for feed, for animal feed. For example, cows. Cows are not meant to eat corn. They are meant to graze and eat grass. But rarely now do cows, which then people eat, they're not eating the grass, they're eating corn. Anyway, going back to the chem lab, in the McDonald's traditional meals, everything was basically corn products. Even the milkshake is all corn products. Of course, your soda, it's all corn syrup. And the hamburger, because it's from corn-fed cattle, everything comes back to corn. And obviously we are not made to be from a one crop feeding us. You know, we we are we originally were hunters and gatherers and we consumed whatever we could find and what was in season and close geographically, of course, to us. So do you think by, if we examine the, like you're describing the food system from within, like where from having experience dealing with it and stuff like that, like the, like the U.S., the standard American diet. Um, but then when you mention corn and let's say someone else mentions uh, sugar 
and then someone else mentions like uh i don't know any type of food that seems to be a heavily used ingredient it seems like there's uh a um collaborative effort to form the standard american diet in a certain direction that promotes certain behaviors and certain retail uh practices uh and then if someone were to say that uh, of course that exists in every industry where the top the people at the top are trying to make the most money they can make so it seems like at this sake since you also have experience with yoga more than experience obviously and sorry the dogs um but this doesn't seem purely uh, a numbers game or like uh, it seems like there's a specific agenda being perpetrated on the American people regarding their diet and it's made them and I guess us a a caricature almost like it doesn't matter if you're if you're not dealing with like morbid obesity if you're American, you're still like some part of your diet is subject to scrutiny because the things available here are hilarious. Like it doesn't even make sense. So I guess who is, why do you think this is happening to us? That's a tough question, but I can also recall the, again, I've worked in marketing communications my whole life. And so um, I unfortunately acknowledge that the marketing communications world has done a lot of harm. And from the US governmental standpoint, I know that they were pushing milk, for example, for a long time. And I don't have anything against milk. I happen to be vegan for many reasons, but I don't have anything um, purely wrong with people consuming dairy. The problem that I have is the kind of dairy that Americans in particular are consuming. And the, the dairy industry is disgusting. The way that the cows are treated, it, they are constantly fed um, antibiotics. And in fact, one of the quotes, one of the statistics from Michael Pollan's book was that the greatest use of antibiotics in the United States is for animals that we ultimately eat. So they are rashly given all these antibiotics because they are maintained in such disgusting quarters that is inhumane as opposed to how you know our ancestors they would have a cow they would have a goat and whatever and they would milk the cow and the goat and they would treat it humanely and they would consume those products and they would care for them there's there's something really so i somehow mostly i like listening to i'm I have nothing, I have no resistance to any of these things. But I'm thinking that in both of our sympathy or empathy for the cows, 
let's just pick one one group of um, animals and i'm not even saying people shouldn't people who have like well-treated cows historically humans have eaten animals obviously at times so i'm not directing any behavior but i guess when you were describing the poor conditions i immediately thought of the large portion of the internet i'm aware of that would scoff at feeling sorry for the cows like as though almost and there is a part of myself also that is like because we all have everything in us in my opinion so i'm trying to see why people have gotten to this point where feeling sorry for a cow is laughable or even to some people even caring about other humans dying isn't like like focus on yourself like it's, it's not affecting you like stop watching the news so in this case a lot of people would say like well they don't see the cows and nothing's happening to them and their life is going fine so if they focus on the cows too much they'll get they'll obviously get depressed and they don't want to so i guess i'm wondering how would you describe your mindset or your what's driving you to care about cows in this conversation and be willing to double down on that and be that person instead of like hide your views and like i don't know especially in like today's climate where i feel like things should be farther along but they're actually somehow going backwards. And like people say that these are more like there's more freedom of speech now than ever. And there's more information transfer. But I do think that that's, um, that's a misdirection so that people feel comfortable consuming information. I don't think so. so I guess, why are you the way you are? What led here? Because your story is, pretty different but I guess did you always care this much about animals yeah so that's a good question and I almost turn that question around and I sometimes ask why do other people not feel the same way that I feel so I am 65 years old and when I was 15 or 16 my mom asked me to help her prepare some chicken and she asked me to, and of course our chickens, so my grand, my great grandfather, he had chickens in his backyard and he would, you know, twist the neck and they would depluck all the feathers. But growing up in the United States, when I did, we bought clean packages of chicken parts, right? The chicken breast, the chicken thigh. So we're already removing ourselves from the slaughter and from seeing what's happening. And so my mother asked me to cut off the, um, the excess fat and the skin from the prepackaged, nice looking chicken parts. And again, I was about 15 years old and it roasted me out. And I had never seen that before. Of course, I had eaten the chicken, but it didn't look like a chicken, right? But when I was cleaning it, I saw the different 
parts, you know, the veins, the fat, the flesh. It grossed me out and I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I can eat this. And so that was like the first trigger. And then not much later, I went to Mexico and I was there for the summer and I went to a slaughterhouse and my group was taken to the slaughterhouse, kind of like, you know, the, the, our, the locals were like, look at our wonderful local industry. And they were, you know, almost bragging about their industry. And I did not see any slaughter, but I was in the rooms where everything takes place. And I just couldn't believe that humans treat animals that way. And so that was when I became vegetarian. So that was um, when I was 16 years old, I was like, I'm not gonna eat meat again. And, you know, again, we have in the, in the West in particular, you know, we're, we're so removed from the actual slaughter. You know, we talk about, you know, you feed little children chicken nuggets and hot dogs and things that don't really look that much like the animal, as opposed to, as I mentioned, my great grandfather who would have the chickens in his backyard and would have to kill and depluck them, you know, put them in boiling water. And another issue that I have seen is that people in the West in particular are believe that you have to have a huge amount of protein. And in the US, it's so common for Americans to eat some animal flesh three times a day. And that is again, through the marketing. Again, I've done food marketing. I did food marketing for all the major brands, General Mills, Nestle, you know, so I know how they market. I also worked for one of the, um, the meat industries and we were taught to say that the protein, the dead animal is the star or the centerpiece of your plate. If you look at many other cultures and how they eat, whether it be Asian food, whether it be, um, whether it be Italian food, the animal flesh is often used sparingly kind of to give taste or but it's not you know a big chunk of the animal and i did want to mention um in i wrote my i wrote a book my book is called from the boxing ring to the ashram and one of the reasons why i wrote the book was because i wanted to share the learnings from a dozen of my gurus around the world and one of the chapters does talk about um alcohol free and meat-free living. And I just wanted to read an excerpt and it says protein deficiency is almost unheard of in the United States. And again, I can tell you since I became vegetarian when I was 16, my mom always thought that I was gonna suffer from malnutrition. <laughs> and, and of course I never have, I've never had any I've never had any deficiency in iron and B12, nothing. Anyway, um, the physician's committee says, it's easy to get all the protein you need without eating meat, dairy, or eggs. More isn't 
always better. One study found that people eating large amounts of animal protein have 23 times the risk of death from diabetes and five times the risk of death from cancer as those consuming less protein. Now, again, working in the holistic health world, and I'm also a fitness instructor, and when I go to the aisles, I consume vegan protein powder, but so many people take nowadays, especially for fitness, take protein supplements, and many of them are made from animal products. And again, there's a belief that we need to have an overabundance of protein. And do you think that that belief is like furthered by then like body image marketing and like the fitness industry? Because basically that's the only way in theory, in any like professional sport, even every athlete is under the impression that they need a certain amount of protein per um, pound of body mass. So I guess it's all these things that seem to be like confusing. We'll say like they're like, if someone doesn't know this and they're hearing it, they're like, okay, well this I guess the way I'm eating is dumb then, so I should change it. But do you feel like there's an easy way to start exploring um, being different? And that we'll call it that. So let's say someone can't suddenly stop eating all the meat they eat and they suddenly can't start doing yoga, but they're curious about they're just like, why does she care so much about animals? Why does she, this is making sense. So how does someone dip the toes into caring when society reminds you that if you're, let's say you're presenting your view and I'm on the internet, there's clearly ha a, a group of people that share your opinions and then a group of people seemingly working to deride your opinions and make you feel horrible. So I guess if someone was wondering how do they start altering the course of their body where it's at right now, what is a good, like a tiny step they can take that's not too big? I see that as having multiple prongs, that question. And one of them is in terms of caring. And in reality, I think either people will care or they will not. I think that the sensitivity factor you know everyone is different and everyone is sensitive to different things i personally think everyone should go and visit a slaughterhouse i also think everyone should watch peta p-e-t-a videos on the internet and see for themselves and then what I tell my clients, so I am a certified yoga therapist and the certified yoga therapist, the way that I work, much of it is about lifestyle changes. And a lot of it is about diet and consumption. And again, I'm not gonna tell somebody, oh, you shouldn't eat meat or you shouldn't eat dairy unless there's a reason. And many times there is a reason. So one of my close friends, I would tell him all the time, you, because I, from an Ayurvedic standpoint, which is the life science from India, 
would say you, from an Ayurvedic standpoint, can eat meat, but you should not eat dairy. You know, dairy is very harmful for you. Other people, from an Ayurvedic standpoint, most people are not supposed to eat meat. And Ayurveda oftentimes encourages the consumption of dairy from, again, from a, a healing standpoint, but every person is different. And so again, as a certified yoga therapist, once I delve into someone's background, I can determine what is best for them. But if, if someone, let's, I'll give you an example, my daughter, she eats a lot of eggs. She doesn't eat very much meat, but she eats a lot of eggs. And I encourage her to always buy free range and ideally from, from someone local that you know that's got those chickens in their yard. Because even the free range that are in the grocery store are not as healthy as the others. And um, so again, it's knowing the source, the same thing with, you know, with your dairy or your meat, get organic and get as, as humanely treated as possible. And if anyone to, were to visit, you know, those factory farms, and that's actually what Michael Pollan did in his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. He went to the traditional disgusting factory farms and then he went to a family run place that does everything organically and with more more humanely and he said the food made from those products tasted very differently he even said that the eggs that were from the from the organic farm you didn't need as many eggs in your preparing of a mousse, for example, because the quality and the taste were so different. And it, I guess this is uh, mostly we've talked about things that people would consider biological right now, like very earthly things like food and our digestive systems and dying from eating certain foods. But then at the same time, you are a yoga therapist. And I guess when you encounter people, do you feel like this is all just biological stuff happening? Or because of I'm um, the things you've mentioned and the studying you've done, I feel like there's a mix of like, I, I guess, do you believe that we have a soul driving us? And are you dealing with both the body and the soul? Absolutely. And in fact, the subtitle of my book is Wisdom for Body, Mind and Spirit. And what many people believe, not it's not common belief, but what many people do believe is that it's about, like, let's just say, a happy cow. And I talk about in my book how I have spent time at an ashram in, at ashrams, several ashrams, but I've spent time at ashrams in India and in Italy where they have a few cows and the cows give them a little bit of milk because they're not loaded with hormones. They are not constantly impregnated. They are not taken away from their calves 
at a very early time. And those cows are treated with love. They even sing to those cows. And many people believe that, you know, if you're singing to the cow and if you're treating the cow beautifully and humanely, and if you consume some of that milk that it produces, that that's divine as opposed to how they are when they are factory farmed and they are living hellish lives. So they say that that fear, that the fear and everything else that the animals are going through is transmitted to us. Now, I cannot attest to this because I did not feel this, but there are many people that I know who said that once they went vegetarian, they themselves became much calmer, more peaceful than how they were before. So if they were, if they had a lot of, I don't want to say violent characteristics, but if they had erratic mood shifts and if they had a lot of negative emotions, they have said that once they became vegetarian, they kind of became much more peaceful. And again, that's just what some people have, have told me. But the idea is that you are what you eat. And if you're eating a loved products from a loved animal, such as again, a little bit of milk from your, the cow that's in your backyard, that's fine. But if you are consuming the processed food from cows that are living in hell, you're not going to be processing it the same way, both biologically and energetically. And do you think, I feel like this is, I guess, how do you think we got here? Because we, because I guess a lot of people give, a, and I guess it's interesting for me because even when I teach a meditation class and the people can be any age, this thing recurs where it seems like people put a lot of weight on the actions of men and this, I mean people, but specifically like people in power or they believe that all circumstances because a few people are doing something and they have these ideas and that's what's playing out. So I guess, do you feel like the condition of the earth right now is just that, like a human, a product of human action? Or do you think that this is like a story being played out in some way? From the yoga perspective, we say that we are in the era of Kali, K-A-L-I, yuga. And Kali Yuga, it's going to last for thousands of years, but basically we're at, at our worst. And from, again, from a yoga perspective, thousands and thousands of years ago, everything was paradise and idyllic and people lived to be a couple hundred years old. I mean, even if you look at, you know, the Old Testament, you know, they talk about how people live to be 500, 600, seven years old. And of course, I always thought, well, they weren't counting the, the years correctly, right? <laughs> but from a yogic perspective, we say that in the prior yugas, which are the eras, 
mankind was at a much more elevated level, both from the brain and from the spirit. And that now Kali Yuga is a dark age where people do kill indiscriminately, they steal indiscriminately, and it's like a more of a dog eat dog world. Um, I just wanted to read another part about factory farming, and this is from my book. And again, I compare because I, I'm not, again, I see that, um, first of all, I don't believe that we are inherently omnivores, but I do recognize that through time and through many different geographies, people have eaten other animals. But in my book, I state the factory farming industry is brutal. Watch any behind the scenes video and it will make you rethink eating a chicken nugget, hot dog, sausage link, or even grilled cheese or scrambled eggs. Today's largest food suppliers are not your small time old McDonald or farmer in the Dell, whose barn is a stone's throw from the owner's house and whose pastures double as the children's playgrounds. Chances are your ancestors had a few farm animals to provide extra food for the family. Although there is a trend to return to growing your own pesticide-free plants and having a chicken coop in your backyard, the vast majority of food products are from enormous factory farms, while small or independent farms account for 20% of all food produced today. They only provide for 1% of the meat dairy and eggs eaten in the US. The other thing that I wanna mention that Michael Pollan also talks about in his book is even if you think you're doing right, let's just say Ben and Jerry's has a beautiful image, right? People think of Ben and Jerry's as, you know, the being made and, you know, beautiful, clean farms in Vermont or whatever. But Ben and Jerry's was bought by I don't remember who. And the same thing, many other traditionally well-respected um, organic brands are now bought by the big major monopolies, but they keep the name of the independent brand like Ben and Jerry's because Ben and Jerry's has such a good image. And yet, and I'm not saying I have no idea. I have not visited the Ben and Jerry's uh, factory. Hopefully everything is still made the way it was intended when Ben and Jerry started it. But again, a lot of these more organic products have been eaten up by the monopolies of the world. And Sorry, I, I usually have several beverages next to me. Today, till like one minute before the podcast, I was standing in the kitchen freaking out. I was like, uh, I'm not in the zone. I'm not going to be able to ask the right questions. But it makes sense because we are in the Kali Yuga. So then it's supposed to feel like this. So my question, and I feel like, you're you're pushing the you're educating the audience about your views on nutrition and i guess when i read your stuff 
what kept sticking out to me was that you're almost using nutrition as like a, a gateway subject to everything else because if people eat healthier then other things would line up so i guess that's why i'm wondering do you think if someone doesn't have the privilege of finding your book and also being in charge of the grocery shopping and doing yoga and now those people are somehow finding you and they still don't have all the privileges to access that information, but they now are hearing from you and you're suddenly their teacher. Um, is there one thing that you think is more important than other things from your experience? Like in trying to, I wouldn't use the word purify, but to make yourself less messed up if you're trying. Sure. What do you I lead many different therapeutic workshops. I have series of different therapeutic workshops. One of them is for digestive disorders because I was diagnosed when I was about 12 years old with a chronic digestive disorder, which I will have for my entire life, but I can manage it and I don't have any issues. But again, that, you know, that's, it's my DNA. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's with me forever. So I lead digestive health workshops. I also lead therapeutic workshops on weight management, because I've also had issues with weight my whole life. And then um, I'm trying to, and then the third one that I do is, um, I'm trying to think of what, what, well, I do bone health workshops and even the bone health is related to digestion. So another chapter in my book is about how your digestive fire, which we call Agni, A-G-N-I in Ayurveda, your digestive fire is basically responsible for your entire well-being, including emotional well-being. And what's kind of shocking to me is that this is knowledge from 5,000 years ago that, you know, that was part of Ayurveda. Um, and modern medicine now has confirmed all of that when you look at the microbiomes, the gut microbiome. And they, they also acknowledge that everything in the gut microbiome affects not only your physical health, but your emotional well-being as well. Anyway, what I teach in my workshops is in addition to what you eat, it's how you eat. And mindfulness is so important when you eat. So if you think again of many societies in the world, it's very common for different people to bless their foods before they eat. And again, that is almost like a, it's a, a, a form of mindfulness. I'm also a Reiki master and many people in the Reiki world will kind of like, um, they will put their hands over their food before they consume it as well. There are so many different ways that you can be more mindful when eating and the perfect example of how americans are not mindful when they eat is when they go to the drive-thru they pay a couple bucks for cheap food and then everything from the drive-thru is handheld food and again if you look back in society traditionally we spent a lot longer time consuming 
our food. And now we, I use this term all the time, we scarf our food down. And when we scarf our food down, it is horrible for the digestion. But again, there's, there's a disconnect between the brain and the gut. And as I mentioned, you know, the, um, the gut microbiome has, we know now that it is responsible for our entire well-being. And so we have to be more mindful every time we eat. A practice in the yoga world that I want to mention, um, you know, I've spent a lot of times at I've spent a lot of time at ashrams in the United States, in India, and in Italy. And one of the practices that is common at ashrams or just in general in the, um, the yogic world is silent eating. So you can be with 200 people in a cafeteria and no one is supposed to utter a word to anyone because when you talk when you eat which you know I was raised you know you're supposed to have dinner with the family and talk about things even if it's politics you talk about things as you're eating but that takes your mind away from the food if you eat in 100% silence your brain is going to focus on the food the enzymes in your mouth, in your saliva, are going to help you to digest before it even gets to your belly. And it's just a very different way of eating than, again, the drive-through culture. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering how would, um, since we've, discussed a lot about the like the mechanics of becoming healthier or exploring stuff um in this field like you mentioned reiki and we've mentioned a lot of different things there's a lot of people who don't tell their own story at the sake of like assuming that so i guess like but but that's something that you do like your story is something you carry with you and you seem to share pretty openly. So I guess, I guess when did you realize that everything wasn't what, well, I don't know how you were raised actually, but it seems like the current status quo of things and the way society is, uh, it would be that there isn't anything to there isn't anything non-physical to our being like where uh, epigenetic phenomena and like that type of stuff. So I guess, how do you feel about your own story and where you're at now? Like if someone was wondering like you as a, as a teacher or a therapist, like what, what do you feel like your purpose is now at this point in your life? Beautiful question. Um, I actually just had a call with someone last night about that, where we were talking about, you know, a higher purpose for living, because 
again, I mentioned before that I worked in the marketing communications field all my life, and I never felt comfortable because I was ultimately pushing burgers and beer. And I stopped drinking alcohol. I used, I worked as a bartender in the United States and in South America before I was 21 years old, which became the legal drinking age in my state. But again, I was a bartender and and then I owned a tapas bar, Spanish tapas bar in South America. And so the more people would drink alcohol, hey, the more money I'm gonna get. But I stopped drinking alcohol very early on in life. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little off track, but I anyway, the purpose I believe in my life now is, I guess I felt guilty for so many years pushing things that I didn't believe in. Another one of, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but another one of my clients, let's just say was um, Pampers. Well, I didn't use Pampers. I used cloth diapers that I hand washed and hand dry and put in the sun to dry when my daughter was little. You know, so I was always pushing things that I didn't believe in. Not that there's anything wrong with hampers, but what happens to them in terms of our planet, right? All the garbage. But I did this, you know, I did everything I didn't believe in for, you know, most of my life. And then finally I said, no, I have to finally stand up more for what I believe in and what I feel more comfortable with. And that was when I left the corporate world and when I said, hey, okay, I'm going to stop making, I never was making tons of money, but I was, that was when I finally said, okay, I'm going to stop getting a steady paycheck and I'll be fine if all I eat are rice and beans, you know, and, um, you know, don't have any more money, but I need to do what I feel good about. And that was when I decided to become a yoga therapist. And that's also in terms of writing my book, I felt that I can reach a lot more people through my book than through my yoga therapy. And my book, you know, you're talking about in terms of like me opening up, I've never liked to talk about myself. And in fact, that's the reason why my book is based on the life lessons from 12 of my gurus around the world. So each chapter features one of my gurus one of them is a Native American elder. One of them is a U.S. Air Force rabbi chaplain. You know, so there are there are people from all different walks of life, all different religions. They live on four continents. And I focus on them and on what their teachings are. And then at the end of every chapter, I give firsthand testimonials of how I can relate to what they teach. And it wasn't easy for me to share my stories because I've, again, I've worked in the marketing communications world my whole life. I was always telling other people's stories. So I can promote you easily, but to talk about myself was much more uncomfortable. But anyway, in terms of my higher purpose is I want to make a difference. You know, I want to, you know, whatever... Um, you know, if I can make one person laugh, one of the chapters is about laughter as medicine. If I can help one person alleviate their pain through laughter, that's one more person that I've helped. 
it's I guess it's interesting that you brought up the Kali Yuga and you brought up your yogic perspective because then your higher purpose then would serve, would be part of a larger system that you also believe in and like a larger cosmic kind of narrative, something that's like a little, uh, a little less prosaic than us talking about like dairy and protein consumption so i guess how do you balance the two or how do you do you spend time thinking about like uh are you meditating a lot and are you like thinking about what is there what's after this life about what was before this one about uh i guess even about since you mentioned the kali yuga and even yogic thinking even um, outside of like if someone's thinking like oh yoga poses that's not what we're referring to but the actual like spiritual beliefs are pretty specific and they're not loose it's like a very specific narrative with specific deities and beings and forces so i guess do you spend much time thinking about that Probably. And some of it is also probably subconsciously. Um, I did meditate. Um, I did two different kinds of meditation this morning before we connected. And two of the chapters in my book are about meditation. One is about how meditation is not just sitting on a cushion and being silent, you know, that there's so many different kinds of meditation and I practice many different forms of meditation. And the other chapter is about how meditation really does, and I know you know this, but it really does rewire your brain. And my my guru for that chapter is a, a PhD neuroscientist, and he talks about how it really does rewire your brain. Um, but I think, again, I think everything we do, you know, kind of contributes and a lot of it becomes subconscious in terms of what we do um but and again i i encourage everyone to have some type of meditative practice because it is essential for us to have clarity and of course it lowers our blood pressure i mean it does so much for us but even in terms of the clarity or I've always wanted to be more, um, uh, I can't think of the word, not intuitive. My mother was very much, you know, one of those people that had a lot of like ESP and she was very attuned to things that, you know, it's like, wow, you know, and like I wasn't, and I've always wanted to be more that way. And meditation, I do believe helps you to be more, um, Again, I don't, it's not really, intuitive isn't the best word, but, you know, to be more in touch with what's not black and white in the world. And I guess it's it's interesting to me that you said that your mother had a lot of ESP, because I feel like we're living in, I guess you, the internet says you're from Chicago. Is this correct? Yes. Okay. So the internet I, 
lie on that. I I just just checked. My my son was born there. So, um, but I'm. I guess I'm wondering in your time on Earth so far in this life, things have clearly changed to where we are talking about ESP pretty casually, and it's not a big deal and we can talk about souls and healing. So do you, how does that fit into this being the Kali Yuga? Like, it seems like somehow, somehow weirder stuff is more mainstream because it's happening actively. Like there are aliens on CNN. So, I mean, clearly things are changing and getting weirder. And I guess, how do you feel about that? I guess, again, if you look back through history, you know, I wonder what is weird and what is normal. So um, going back to the the ancient texts, you know, there was the story of Hanuman who, you know, flew from like, you know, from the, the tip of India to Sri Lanka, you know, uh, and he's, a monkey and so so you know that kind of seems modern day it would seem preposterous but i was told that there have been they have found underwater almost like uh, i don't want to say footprints but they have found different things to to indicate that this could be true the same thing with jesus parting the water you know when he when he walked you know he parted the water or he walked on water, you know, so there are so many things. If you go through history and through all different religions where we say, how can any of this be true? It all sounds so weird. So maybe again, maybe the question is, I don't want to say what is reality, but what is the norm? And, you know, I'm a huge reader. I read at least one book a week and I've been doing a virtual book club on Instagram and Facebook every single week since March of 2020. So I feature a different book. The book that I'm reading right now is by Sylvia. I think her last name is Brown. She's a major, um, um, again, uh, ESP. I can't think of what they're called, but clairvoyant, you know, type of person. Channeler. Pardon? Is she a channeler? I don't know if she does channeling, but she definitely is clairvoyant. And and I've read a lot about other people like this as well. And what is so common for them is when they're children, they know they're different and they're kind of taught to not share anything that they are seeing or feeling because people will think that they're crazy and they're not. <laughs> but we have always had people like that, but again, it's just, you know, how do we as society look at them? And again, in different cultures have different, you know, different norms. Um, one of the books that I read a long time ago, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's about um, someone with um, epilepsy who is from either Laos or Cambodia, but somewhere over there. And the culture from where this child is born is that when you have seizures, because he's an epileptic child, they consider it that you're 
kind of conversing with your with the angels and they almost see it as being positive and that this is a blessed child uh so again you know different cultures different different parts of the world have different viewpoints on what some of us may consider weird so i and i guess this is kind of a i ask people this question and i think some it's just a weird one but do you have any experience it like are you more of a I wouldn't say like you're seeking out what isn't like commonly seen but have you had any experiences whether they're in healing yourself or learning something or during a meditation that that confirm what you are taught by your teachers like what you see as like personal confirmation like if i was asking you if you've ever seen bigfoot and you said well yes he literally stole my bag of chips has anything like that ever happened to you well first of all what i want to mention is i believe that i'm very much a very very grounded kind of person where i like to see research and i like proof for everything so growing up i never believed in religion because it's like hey, I've never seen God, you know, how do I know that, that that God exists? And of course, we were told God was male. But I've always wanted to see proof. And in fact, in my book, every single chapter includes clinical studies and research, because I want to be sure of what's going on. So that said, with my personal experiences, I have done a lot of things where I think, yeah, it worked, but I don't have the proof of before and after, you know, and I don't have the clinical studies, but here are just a couple of examples is, and I talk about this in my book, there was one period of time within a two month period in Central America where I was bitten by a dog and um, I needed stitches. I think it was about this big, the gash. So I got a pretty big gash bitten by a dog Fortunately, I found out that I was in Costa Rica and I learned that rabies among dogs has been eradicated in Costa Rica. So I was not concerned, you know, about me dying. It was just healing my wound because it was a big wound. And then within 60 days after getting that huge bite and being stitched up, I got a second degree burn on my arm, which you can still see some of the, the scarring, but um, so it was a second degree burn. And what I was doing is, of course I did what you're supposed to do medically, right? <laughs> you know, so I, I got a tetanus shot and I was getting, I was going every day to the hospital for, for burn treatment. So I was doing what you are supposed to do from the medical standpoint, but I was also repeating a healing mantra from the Kundalini tradition. And I would repeat it sometimes three hours a day. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I was disconnected from the world. I could do it while I was doing my yoga practice. I could do it, you know, while I was doing other things. But again, I did this meditation of a healing mantra for three hours a day to help myself heal. Now, again, I don't have proof how it would have been without 
and how it was with. And then just this week, there were um, people that I really care about that needed healing, two people that needed healing that I was very worried about. And a friend of mine suggested that I do a Chinese medicine mantra. And so I repeated that Chinese medicine mantra from, it's more from the Buddhist uh, traditions. And I did my own kind of meditation also to heal these people. And I also did some Reiki on them and they're fine now. <laughs> but again, I can't, you know, I don't have the proof of how would they have been without that. So I guess being born in Chicago as like this whole thing is, it was supposed to just be me talking to people I already know. And then slowly I started talking to people I've never met. So I guess in telling your story, did you ever, when you were in like first grade, did you, was there like some kind of yoga influence in your life or a spiritual influence that early on? Or did you come to this yourself and then get dragged across the world by like, how did this happen? Yeah. So again, I was a very, um, you know, very questioning type of person. So I didn't believe in spirituality. I didn't believe in religion. However, from a physical perspective, you know, I mentioned that I had chronic, well, I had digestive disorders. I was diagnosed with chronic digestive disorders when I was about 12. And I was also diagnosed with musculoskeletal um, 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 deformation that Again, no, no big deal, but that was causing chronic pain. And that was also about the time I was 12. So when I was very young, preteen, when I was an adolescent, I two specialists in Chicago that had, you know, great credentials, they both diagnosed me with these different problems. Fortunately, neither of them recommended drugs or surgery. They recommended lifestyle changes. So even things like sleeping with a piece of wood under your back, your back or working the core. So I started doing core exercises and focusing on my posture to help out my back, which basically was yoga and things that I still do every day. Last night in one of my classes, one of my students told me that he was in an accident, I don't know, 12 years ago. And so the work that we did in that yoga class was also to help him with his back because I learned these things from, um, you know, a, a specialist in Chicago. And then as far as for my digestive disorders, that was also when I became more mindful about my eating. Again, consider I was 12 years old and the doctor said, keep a, a, a diary of everything you eat to determine what are triggers. I actually found that more than what I ate, it was stress. And um, so that was when I 
became, I, I just kind of intuitively, I didn't know what meditation was. I didn't know what pranayama breath work was. I found it on my own intuitively. I found that if I practiced slow, deep breathing, and if I could close out everything from around me, I was able to calm my, I had su such severe pain that I remember once I went to the ER in Mexico City when I was living in Mexico. Uh, so again, and this was all stress related. And so that's why very early in my life, I just intuitively learned about breath work and meditation. And when you say stress related, you mean like, like childhood trauma or you were just stressed out? You know, that's what I've, I've talked about this recently. And I, because again, I lead digestive um, disorder workshops. And I say, when I was a kid, my stress, I had no traumas. My stress was ridiculous compared to when I became a professional as working in marketing communications, one of my areas of expertise was crisis communications. So it was normal for me to work in crises as an adult. And I did have a lot more, um, you know, I think most adults are gonna have more exposure to different kinds of trauma, but every person responds differently. And I recognize that minor, minor things can affect me. So I think I am hypersensitive in some ways. And I tell people all the time, I am the most chill person you know. And again, I, I, one of my specialty areas was crisis communications. So it'd be like, oh, we've got a mass murder. You know, oh, we've got bombs going off. Oh, we've got shootings, whatever. That was like, okay, this is normal for me to work in these environments. And yet as a child, you know, again, it could just be very little things. So my triggers, and that's why everyone is different. And one of my doctors, um, probably about in 2010, when I was, um, I was diagnosed pre-diabetic, even though I had lived a healthy lifestyle my entire life and I had always avoided sugars and I was at the proper weight you know, I was doing everything right. And then I was diagnosed pre-diabetic and my mom died from diabetes, you know? So I was very aware of what to do to prevent it for myself. When I was finally diagnosed, I remember, you know, at one point talking to my doctor and, you know, I just, you know, kind of let out, you know, I see some other people eating whatever, you know, and I have to be so, so, strict with my lifestyle and my doctor said do not ever compare yourself to anyone else and that's kind of what I understand now from myself as a child you know and even today you know I don't think I have any um I don't think I have any stressors going on in my life 
but I still do every day. I do my own yin and restorative yoga first thing in the morning to help calm me down. And I do my other forms of meditation and breath work to calm me down. And I guess when, when you said you were hypersensitive, immediately I thought of myself and I was like, geez, like, it just, I guess, does it, do you think it takes a bit of putting your ego aside to identify these types of traits in yourself and then state them out loud? States, um, traits that are by society considered unproductive. So like, no one's going to like, um, like I'm not going to run around saying, guess what guys, I'm hypersensitive. Uh, or like, like put that on my Instagram bio. I should, I should put hypersensitive on there. It would. Well, the other thing that is becoming so popular now is to talk about neurodivergency. You know, back, you know, when I was a kid, that was considered weird. You know, that kid has issues or, yeah. but, but now we all, we embrace it. Again, we are all different and we just need to, you know, I was watching a rerun from I Love Lucy yesterday, you know, which dates back to, I don't know, 1950s, 1960s. And again, society has changed so much, you know, with how people are. And I think it's wonderful that people can now be much more open about whether it's their sexuality, whether it's their um, their identity. There are so many different ways now that we can say and acknowledge and say we are different and we're not shamed like we were before. And, and I guess like right now as you're you you're doing all these practices and it what is your daily life like in terms of like where you are in your journey because the people who you're helping are of course important but you're the one who I'm talking to and I'm wondering after all this helping what do you do for fun or is helping the fun that you do? I love that question. And helping can be taxing. I remember I asked a dear friend of mine once who was a pranic healer. And I asked him, how do you protect yourself? And he gave me a tip of how he protects himself from the negative energy. And what my favorite therapeutic workshop that I've been leading for about eight years is called First Love Yourself. And it's not about being egocentric. It's about recognizing what our needs are. And it's about finding time to prioritize our well-being. And sometimes it's just finding what is it that you like to do? Do you like to play computer games? Do you like to walk out in, you know, walk with your dog? What is it that you like to do that makes you feel good? And the term that I like to use is what makes your heart sing? And for me, for example, one of the things that makes my heart sing is when I actually sing. So I go to kirtan, which is devotional singing a lot. And to me that is very nourishing and that heals my 
my soul and I just feel wonderful. But again, also being in nature is essential to me. So I was going through a lot more stress the last couple of weeks than normal. And, you know, if I can take time to sit on my patio in the sun and meditate or read or take a walk in the park, then those are the ways that I'm loving myself. And to get even more into the the minutia, the the unnecessary details. You described yourself as like a stressed out child. And I've I am that maybe. Yeah, maybe I'm just I'll and we're all always the child we were. So I guess it how do you think right now in terms of do you think with like how do I serve others best or do you take one day at a time? Do you have a grand plan? Is there another book you're working on? Is there like something that you're always thinking about in the in the like main quest and then you have side quests? Exactly. I would say yes and yes and yes. And I also want to mention, because you also, to me, seem like the most chill person around. And what I tell people sometimes is that oftentimes the people that are more expressive, though they have their own releases. And I don't know if you remember in the movie Saturday Night Fever, there's one point where they go underneath like the Brooklyn Bridge or something and they just scream their heads off. I know and, what you're talking about. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, I would never do that. You know, I was always the quiet child. I was the meek child. You know, I, I would never complain out loud to anybody. I take everything inside. And that's why my gut responds. But sometimes we need that um that outlet and everybody's outlet can be different and that, that's why you know in my book you know I talk about it could be singing no uh tell them go dancing you know go to a um you know, just dance your, dance your, you know, your, your, yourself crazy. Or, you know, again, listen to something humorous, but find everybody is different. So find what is right for you. And then on the other, the other comment you had is, yes, I definitely want to have a second book. And um, the master plan for that is not identified yet. But that is my goal is to have that higher purpose. I like to always have a higher purpose. And again, right now, my higher purpose is to nurture people that I care about, be there for the people that I care about, and also provide as much, as much tips, as many tips as possible to those I don't know through my book. And I guess speaking of writing, we haven't really 
we haven't talked about it yet. And I wanted to definitely avoid talking about it as much as I could on purpose so that we could just get to it after everyone knows you a little bit more. So I guess, why did you write your book? Like what was the experiences clearly had occurred and were occurring but what made your you decide that you're going to compile a book and i and this is your first book yeah it's my first solo book i contributed to two different um industry type books that were like marketing communications books so i contributed to two one was a college textbook for public relations students but you know those were totally different. I love the story of how my book arose and it was during COVID and the very beginning of COVID. I, I mentioned that I've been doing my weekly virtual book clubs since March of 2020. So as soon as, you know, I was working, I had tons of different, I was stretched to the max. I was doing so much work. I had, I was always juggling lots of different things. And right before COVID, I told my partner at the time, I said, you know, I have to set aside at least one day where I'm not working because I was working seven days a week. I was driving everywhere and not making much money, but, you know, stretched really thin. So I actually resigned one of my last clients, um, public relations clients right before COVID to have more time for myself, to have a day off because I didn't have a day off you know I was working around the clock and then COVID hit and all of a sudden I had 24 hours a day with nothing to do <laughs> so you know here I was like I'm working my butt off I'm stretched to the max and then all of a sudden it was complete opposite and I immediately embraced that and I said, you know, people at the time, I so clearly recall, they were like, oh, we're going to be like this for two weeks. I'm like, no, it's not going to be for two weeks. And I recognized I needed to recraft my life. Because again, I was, I, was a, I was a writer, but um, a different kind of a writer. I didn't have a book, but I was a writer. I was doing my public relations work. I also had an Airbnb that I had. I was a yoga therapist and a yoga instructor. So I basically had five jobs. Jeez. And then all of a sudden, zilch. So I recognized, I embraced the change as a time to figure out where to go next. And that was again when I came up with the virtual book club because I didn't want to be doing yoga online, you know, like everybody else. So I did my virtual book club, which I continue today because I love it. And it's like, hey, this is me. This is who I am. I love reading and I love sharing about my books. Um, but to go deeper, I did a three-day type of, um, if anybody is familiar with Vipassana, meditation traditionally vipassana is 10 day silent meditation retreat where you don't even have pencil or paper you don't read you're completely focused on different things and it's usually guided you know there's a facilitator 
I made, I did my own kind of vipassana for three days and three nights. And I did allow myself one piece of paper and one pencil. And during that period of time, this idea came into my head. It was so clear. I basically created the outline for my book and my entire marketing plan for my book during these three days. I had no intention before that of writing a book. It was not anywhere on my radar because again, I, I was juggling five jobs. And so it was, it was just wild how this just all came to me through my meditations. So I did it. I ran with it. And I guess how now in terms of marketing the book, how, because this is like, because you may be in a way we're marketing the book right now, but by discussing it, it becomes like a double, triple, like inverted meta discussion. I don't know what we're really talking about at this point, but is it, are you applying mindfulness to marketing your own book now because the thing you're selling is or sharing is something you love and care about whereas in the past you've had to use your skills to promote things that you felt the opposite about totally <laughs> yeah but at the same time you know again being having worked in the marketing communications field for so long as i mentioned it's a lot easier to promote someone else than to promote yourself um, I have coming up, I'm partnering with two other yoga therapists who also have books and we're going to do a collaboration. And what I said to them too, is I said, you know, I really want to do this collaboration because we're coming from the same worlds. We have the same mindsets. And I said, it's a lot easier for me to promote your books than to promote my book. And is it... Do you think it's just like a point of like a marketing thing or is it also, are you just generally someone who likes to stay out of the spotlight? Oh, definitely. Um, again, I would say I have, I was always the shy kid <laughs> and you, you might not, it might not seem obvious. And maybe that's because professionally, one of the things that I did and one of the things that I love the most about the marketing communications world. And if I could do only one type of function as a marketing professional, it would be to be a, um, a media trainer. So I have been a professional media trainer. I can for, still hear you. Okay, for like for 40 years, I have been doing professional media training in both English and in Spanish. I've done it in the United States and Mexico, in Puerto Rico. I have trained CEOs of major companies. I have trained celebrities. And most people are not familiar with media training, but basically what media training is, is I tell people how to respond to a podcaster, how to respond to a newspaper um, journalist. I tell them, you know, basically how to get their message across and how to do it, whether it be on camera or whether it not be. So 
and of course that doesn't mean that I do all this myself because I try to be natural, <laughs> but I will tell, you know, my clients don't wear this color, wear another color, or here's an example on my shirt. I mean, I'm not promoting anything, but this is from an ashram that is near and dear to me. I chose to wear this shirt just because that's, you know, it's reflecting one of the ashrams, but you know, I taught people all the time, have a big image behind you of what you're selling. Well, of course I'm not, you know, I don't, I could have a big, huge blow up of my book. It would which, be kind of cool. Yeah. But again, that's, that's not my style, you know, so I'm, I'm true. Wait, what about a book cake? Like a cake of your book, like those, the, is it cake or is it a book and you slice it? something you know I what else like on um on either facebook or instagram ads i've seen you can get these earrings that are like book stacks yes but i would like the earrings to be like my book you know yes. like kind of that's book, a good idea my book as little earrings a good idea you yeah. could also now i'm just getting weird imagine if you made tiny like dollhouse books off your book and just left them places and people start losing their minds. They're like, I found this tiny book. It's messed up. I don't know. She's following me. Uh, but I guess uh, the reason I, I asked earlier about your upbringing, uh, because I was wondering, it seems like you found your way like in right now in America and I guess Europe and Europe and America yoga and new age spirituality and like remnants of various eastern philosophy are mixed with new thought and everything's talked about now but i guess how did you find yourself uh in ashrams and meditating and doing stuff that it seems like you weren't being like steered to do as a child or were or were your parents or someone trying to like steer you in a direction my parents were progressive and liberal but they wouldn't have known what an ashram was they didn't know anything about you know yoga and again when i became vegetarian i didn't know a single vegetarian i probably didn't even know the word vegetarian so I was raised, you know, pretty traditionally, but again, I just think it was just so natural for me. And those were the places that I felt the most comfortable. If I can, I would love to read the very end of my book is the 13th Guru. And it's a little bit about my mother. So can no, I of course. that? Yeah. The one Guru missing from this book is my mother. Her physical appearance, personality, and emotions seemed to be the opposite of mine. When she wheeled me around in my baby buggy, people questioned whether we were related. Her pitch black hair and brown eyes did not match my blue eyes and light blonde Shirley Temple-like ringlets, although the similarities were difficult to recognize before. Now, I see many shared attributes. My mother was a writer. Without a doubt, she was my greatest guru. White out, felt-tipped pens and colored paper for her drafts covered half of the kitchen table. 
remember this was before the days of word processors. <laughs> it was the days before electric typewriters. And I worked in the marketing communications world before computers as well. It was a pain in the neck. My mother worked on a clunky black upright royal manual typewriter, striking those keys with force so something would appear on the page. Her reward was a high-pitched ping whenever she hit the return key. Before the days of memory chips or cards, every rewrite called for new sheets of paper. This was, I cannot imagine going back to those days. She was tenacious, receiving rejection letter after rejection letter. My dad complained that the earnings for her writing barely covered the postage from her submissions, which were sent by mail with self-addressed stamp return envelopes. She was creative and resourceful in a quirky way. She upcycled before the days of recycling. Dressed in Bermuda shorts and an old button-down shirt, she painted, stained, refinished, and reconfigured antique furniture and floor-to-ceiling framed pictures and stacks of tchotchkes. Anyway, I go on, but it's just a, a little bit more about, you know, just honoring that my mother would, I, I guess most people would have thought she was weird. <laughs> and so I guess, do you think how much do you think that informed who you are today or shaped it? 100%. Do, and then <clears throat> I guess since we have spoken about souls and yoga and good things, I guess in your, and this is like a random question, but what do you think the nature of like our connection to our parents is and you you have you mentioned your daughter as well so do you i feel like a lot of people look at it as like you're biologically connected so you're going to be similar your genes are similar but i feel like i can do you feel like there's a higher duty or a higher connection that family members or <clears throat> just any like I guess in your case I'm wondering it seems like the the divine feminine in modern society is kind of um a commonly talked about subject and um how how do you feel you are transferring this kind of this way of thinking that isn't commonplace to your daughter if you if you are even or are you trying to just show her how you live and hope that she sees reason in it and tries to adopt it well i totally want my daughter to be who she's meant to be and i think my parents definitely allowed me to be who i was meant to be but I'm tearing up a little bit right now because I'm thinking about my connection to my mother who passed away quite a long time ago. And I mentioned earlier that I was doing the Chinese medicine healing mantra for people that I cared about this week. And I was also praying to my mother. And 
the night before I found out that one of the people was fine and two days before I found out that the other person was fine, I had a dream about my mother and in my dream, I was totally lucid, totally normal and I saw my mother, I knew that it was her spirit and in my dream, I hugged her so tightly, knowing that it was her spirit and that I was in public and people would think, what on earth is this lady doing? And again, that was just a couple of days ago. And the next day I found out that one of the people that I was concerned about was okay. And the next day I found out that the other person I was concerned about was okay. So, um, you know, in terms of connections, you know, again, was it just my overactive mind or was it something where my mother was really reaching out to me? I don't know. I, I guess at this point, I feel like I usually, if this was like 30 episodes ago, I would have been like, yeah, who knows what it was like, Matt, like, but I feel like at this point, given everything that's happening in culture, sorry, there's a lot of movement around me. My brain got, I was like, oh, dogs. I think my son is making tacos. My, yes, so good, good. We're, we're doing it. It's all happening here. It's the Kali Yuga and the kiss. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so... Do you think that this, par sorry, I just was waiting for that microwave beep to really hit. Um, <laughs> it's fine, Xander. You can you can microwave. You're not supposed to microwave tacos. <laughs> this man is out of control. He's not even. You don't even understand. If I try to, the other day. This is great. The other day, I was like, hey, can you not hold your phone there? He's like, well, why? I was like, can you move your phone away from your groin, please? I just don't want it there. And he will just don't hold it when you're not using it, please. But it's too hard. I don't want to always be talking about cancer. I sound crazy. I don't. It's not right. I'm just like, or I don't know. He's, I, I feel like I'll, I'll put you in touch with Xander so you can, you can explain to him some stuff, but it's, I guess my question, and this is even, this is better because my son has also been having similar experiences to what you just described but in a different way like on the spectrum of like odd experiences and then i he's he's 12 but i put him in touch with some of the people from the podcast even who deal with those subjects and everyone's like oh yeah i see stuff like that too oh that that happens to me too so now either we're talking about a shared psychosis that seems to not follow any kind of pattern or it appears that there's this other side to life 
that we seem to be raised to intentionally not believe in, like not just to ignore, but if someone brings it up, we are taught to like stomp it out and make sure like people know this couldn't be true. It's never true. And if you talk about it, we will ostracize you. So I guess, why do you think that is? Like from your findings now at this point, why do you feel like it's not mainstream? Like you saying that you heal people with your hands is like too far out there. You saying that you saw your mother's spirit and hugged her. It's like people are like, okay, that's too far. If you saw her in a dream and hugged her, we'd accept it because lucid dreams are proven by its science. But since you saw the spirit in daytime and hugged it and no one else saw it, this is a thing. No, mine was in a dream. Okay, you're sorry. <laughs> well, if it wasn't, I guess I didn't add that. If it wasn't in a dream and you had had it happen, someone would have said, oh, there's no scientific precedence for this besides hallucination, so we can't allow it. Uh, well, I guess we are taught to fit in. And again, you know, I look back at, you know, as I mentioned that one book about the, about, again, it was, it was, it, I mentioned Laos or Cambodia. It's about the Hmong, H-M-O-N-G people. And the Hmong people, they believe that if you're epileptic, you're, you know, you're connected to the spirit. So again, it's always cultural beliefs that tell us what's right and what's wrong and what, um, what is good and what is bad. But if you think about most children, it's very common for children to have imaginary friends, you know, <laughs> and the parents, you know, are like, you know, that's your imaginary friend, you know, you're making it up and, you know, and, and parents try to wipe out any of those um, more, you know, what, I mean, there must be a reason why children have those imaginary friends. And again, I'm not a child psychologist. <laughs> I have no mm -hmm. idea. You know, what's really interesting. This is the first time I've, this is hilarious. I've probably spent my, I'm 32. I've spent my, since I was 10 reading about this stuff and doing dumb things. Like I'm just like, my brain has been obsessed with weird subjects, but I never thought I knew if it was real at all. I just was immersing myself in escapism. I literally thought, I was like, this is much better than real life. So I'm escaping into it. But now as soon as, and I guess slowly through like meditation and other things, it started seeming like the other side might be real. And I was like, oh, this is terrifying. All of this is true. Ah, I have a soul. Oh no. But I guess I never thought of my childhood imaginary friend phase through a like a energy work lens or any kind of this lens because I guess in my case now that I think about it I tried to like personify the thing into like a dog because I my I think my dog had just maybe no I wanted another dog so I just made up a dog it was something like that but now that I think about it I don't remember making it up. 
Like, I don't remember ever seeing a dog, but I remember feeling this like thing and then describing it. And then now in retrospect, all like two decades later, I'm like, how bizarre that I started feeling that feeling. And then at the time to myself, I was like, what are you doing with your brain? Are you, are you imagining this? How does imagination work? How does your brain work? I don't know. I'm making this up. Ah, so I guess, do you think that if children are equipped earlier on in life with the tools to just use their own brain, like not even any kind of practice, just like, hey, like, how do you think, think about thinking? Do you think that could be like a major difference maker? Or do you think they need more structure because of how long society has gone without any kind of work in that direction again i'm not a child psychologist but i think children should not be pushed into a mold which is what we tend to do and you know we we teach kids what's right and wrong in many different ways but i wanted to also mention that kind of on what we were talking about other things where you just feel things it's very common for people to meet someone and feel immediately that there's an attraction and i'm not talking about opposite sex or you know from a sexual perspective i'm talking about so many times i meet someone and right away we hit it off and people you know will say well maybe in another lifetime you knew each other or there are times where you go to a different city or a different place and you feel as if you have been there even though your brain knows you have never been there there are also the thing that I've noticed a lot of times is some people, for example, I'm just going to make this up. Let's just say John, he, let's just say he lives in Des Moines, but he doesn't feel a connection to Des Moines. And let's say he goes to Sedona and he feels a deep connection to Sedona. Well, places like Sedona and other places, there have been a lot of things through history that have happened there. And so it could be that there are reasons why John feels a connection to Sedona and not to Des Moines. So, so then I guess this started with the nutrition, but now it came to, I guess it seems like the same type of logic infiltrates every, everything that exists. Like all that is seems to be governed by the same type of people the same type of agenda and agenda makes it sound nefarious but in this case let's just say goals it's like the the people in charge have similar goals that seem to be quite opposite to everything you're saying like the exact opposite maybe like let's say you're describing people gaining emotional wellness through giving themselves time and recharging their energy uh and this would sound crazy to corporations because more time to recharge means less time to work maybe they can recharge at work is there some way we can do that so i guess why do you think that is like why isn't wouldn't it like let's say hundreds of years ago wouldn't it have served humanity better for leaders to have advisors who told them hey like if you treat these people really well they're going to make you a bigger better empire they'll research better they'll build 
taller buildings. Why do you think that group has never surfaced in our history, it looks like? So first of all, I want to mention that one of the chapters of my book is about how everyone should practice Shabbat or Sabbath. And they can do it in many different ways. It doesn't mean from a religious standpoint, but it means to disconnect and to reconnect with your soul and to turn off the TV. I don't own a TV, but to turn off the TV, to turn off all of your devices. You know, most of us, you know, have these, if not at our groin, they're, they're stuck to our bodies somewhere. They're always within reach, but we need to turn off our devices more frequently. And so in my book, I recommend that everybody should take 24 hours a week to turn off all their devices, to turn themselves back on, to reboot themselves. But the answer to your question, I think, is I believe that this was the campaign slogan, not the internal campaign slogan for, I think it was for Bill Clinton and his, you know, um, political analysts had everywhere huge internally huge signs that said it's the economy stupid meaning that everything goes back to how can you make more money for yourself how can you make more money for your country and how can everything be more profitable and you had asked quite a long time ago something about nutrition and food and why are things like they are and again, Michael Pollan in his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, talks about it's the economy, stupid. He doesn't say that, but he talks about how it's more profitable to give the cattle all the antibiotics and to cram hundreds of thousands of cattle onto one farm so that they cannot even move. You know, it's, I mean, it, it, it's horrendous, but you know, again, it's the economy, stupid. Sorry, I wasn't, for some reason, I wasn't expecting that to ever come up in my head again. And now that it's there, I'm like, whoa. I guess uh, in an effort, since this is our first time recording, but hopefully there will be many more. In your book, is something people can find and then they will know about you. And I guess this can be a bookmark in your life that has some information on it. So in terms of your journey right now with your own practice and healing, um, what does like in the state you're in now and someone's like, oh, I wonder what this type of person does like right after this. And this is what we usually ask, like, what, what are you going to do right after we're done? And if it's scream, it's okay. You can, can admit it. It's fine. Well, it's because of the time where I am, cause I'm a, I'm in Texas right now. So in terms of the state you asked, I know you were not talking about the geographical state, but I am in the state of Texas and I'm always in a good positive state of mind, but what I'm going to do as soon as I disconnect from you is I'm going to eat some food. And I prepared, um, here's something interesting that I prepared the other day and I've got it in my refrigerator. I love pomegranates and it's so rare that 
we have good pomegranates and they're usually so expensive too. And my food co-op had three pomegranates on sale for, I don't know, $5. And I do all different things with pomegranates. I put the seeds in my Brussels sprouts and I made, I know that the pomegranate juice on its own is too sweet for me. So I, you live in Arizona, so you can get nopales. I'm, I, yes, I'm super excited right now because I love pomegranates. So I was literally just waiting to hear what you made. Sorry. Well, okay. what I made the other week was I, um, my grocery stores, I can get the, the, I can get the cactus, the nopales, you know, without the prickly stuff prepared and cut, but fresh, I can get them at my grocery store. So I mixed the pomegranates with the nopales, put them in my Vitamix, and I drank pomegranate nopal juice, which was really good. And for if you don't know, from a um, from a from an indigenous belief, um, I don't know about the science. I haven't read clinical studies, but they say that nopales help to reduce your blood sugar, and I have to be careful with it. So if I'm going to have pomegranates, which I know have the sugar, mixing them with nopales is like a perfect, but I drank all that. If that didn't last very long, I drank it all. It was so good. And then what I did this week is I mixed the pomegranates with celery. So it's celery pomegranate juice. And I do add water to, to make it a little thinner and it's so, delicious. So wait, so far, these are, these are two juices. Yes. Are we, do you eat food? I, w I will. I'm not sure what I'm going to eat, but I will definitely eat something. But I'm, um, I definitely want my pomegranate celery juice. But if I can give you another idea of something that I made recently without a recipe that was really good with pomegranates. Yes, I'm, I'm ready. So I try to be gluten free and I try to be grain free. And the main reason for me being that way is because of my blood sugar. So I have to, you know, I try to avoid that. But, hey, I still like my indulgences. So I made gluten-free, grain-free, 100% pure cacao brownies with pomegranate seeds. Oh, that's pretty. That sounds good. And it was the, you know, so it was almost like the crunchiness, you know, because it was the complete arrows. So I didn't, you know, put them in the blender. It was just with the arrows. Oh, great. So then do they like, are they like sunflower seeds in terms of like how they crunch or are they more like, are they tougher? I thought it was perfect. Um, <laughs> it, it, um, it wasn't like an, I guess it was almost like a nut. I, I wasn't not like a raisin yeah I wasn't I feel like I haven't found anything about your baking brownies on the internet so I feel like where this is a breaking story right now maybe that'll be my next blog post I I feel like honestly because most baking that's vegan because I guess this is very weird to bring up now and um we're, but I was a vegan and a vegetarian for a long time. And at that time, I was competing in combat sports, like boxing. So it's hilarious 
And then now I, I'm like, I just eat a norm, like a omnivorous diet, but it's funny. Like, and I haven't, we, I feel like that's why we, have, I feel like we have tons to talk about, but Especially I guess. It's from the box spring to the ashram. So yeah. That's, that's hilarious. But uh, I guess I was wondering more with cooking and recipes. Is your improvisation through experience so at the beginning, do you think people should just like look up recipes? Is that the best way to start? So the reason why mine is improvisational is because I have such a restricted diet that it's very hard for me to find um, recipes that are right for me. So I will find one recipe and then I'll modify it. What I had for breakfast before I connected with you and again, it's, I take a recipe, but then I totally alter it. It was for um, coconut carrot muffins. And again, these were made with coconut flour, almond flour, tons of carrots, coconut milk. And again, I don't use any sweetener. Um, and then like flaxseed and things like that. But um, I'm so hungry now. <laughs> I can't live like this. We can't, I feel like I need to prepare food for the end of every podcast when I ask people what they're going to do and everyone says they're going to eat and they describe the food and I can't stop asking questions. It's just, it's too much. I, um, what about in terms of your pace for the day? I guess, because this, we've been talking at a kind of, I really liked the pace because it was not too fast and not like, I didn't feel overwhelmed, which some people go really fast. Um, so are you going to like, let's say you have your juice and stuff and then you, do you already have your day planned out? Are you going to give yourself space to figure it out? How does that work in terms of progressing from this pace onward to like modern life? Well, the reason why I scheduled today with you was because today is actually my day off okay so um yes i do already have things planned for the day and it's because it's my day off it's going to be a little bit of self-care because it's it's my only day off and i have been working some crazy hours and so i have already scheduled a 90 minute I, i'm gonna i'll hey i'll promote them they're uh uh, I've scheduled a 90 minute facial with the Aveda Institute, which is the teaching school. So you don't, you pay very little for it, you know, cause it's students. So I'm doing a 90 minute facial and then I'm going to go to one of the yoga studios where I work and I'm going to take two of their classes because it's totally different. Me being a yoga instructor, of course I can do everything and I'm trained in everything of yoga. But when I go to someone else's class, it's, I'm treating myself. No, of course. And I feel like that's the, like you just exposed yourself as like a, an actual teacher by being able to be a student. Like those are the only ones who are like, like you, you obviously didn't want anyone to think like you're still in the, like the beginning learning stages and you're going to like guide them somewhere wrong but you also 
you didn't hide that you're super excited about doing two other yoga classes. And I feel like that's like the best thing when you meet like a sports coach who loves playing the sport or a art teacher who loves painting and is super happy about it. That I feel like that's a really good thing. And I feel like people should know that now, like by watch, they're like, oh, wait, so she's doing yoga and then she's going to make me do yoga. I get it now. And of course, I already did my own yoga this morning. I did, I did my own yin restorative yoga early in the morning. I do it with my japa. So, if, you know, if anybody is not familiar with japa, it's the meditation of repeating a mantra with beads. So I do that with my yin and my restorative. And then I went outside in the sun and I did a little bit of, of kundalini yoga. Um, so I, I already did bits and pieces of my own stuff. But again, it's when I go to someone else's class, then I get to just soak it up. And do you feel, and I feel like we can end with this question because I won't stop otherwise. Um, do you feel like it's, um, if someone were to feel resistance to going to someone else's yoga class and they're a yoga teacher or they're in your position, do you think that, they should try to overcome that resistance, even if they disagree with the other teacher's methods or they haven't experienced them before? Do you think it's an important thing? So just as I have a hard time understanding why people eat meat, I have a hard time understanding why there would be resistance to going to another person's class. What I do understand is a lot of people will be like, I will only do Ashtanga, I will only do Kundalini, I will only do um, hot yoga, you know, I will only do vinyasa. I tell my students all the time, I want my students to go to as many different teachers classes as possible. And I want them, I teach all different kinds of yoga, and I want them to practice all different kinds. One, it helps to have you more well-rounded, but also it's common for people to really feel an attraction to one teacher or to one form of yoga at a certain time in their life. And then later on, they may evolve and be attracted to something totally different, which is fine. No, that, that makes sense. I feel like it's, it's good to hear because I feel like uh, me telling yoga teachers to do yoga with other people it doesn't really they're like why are you telling what do you know I'm like I'm just saying it's a little suspicious that you stopped learning 22 years ago like what's happening we should how could you have learned all the yoga all the way of being how could you and like, if I say you know I don't I don't consider myself a yoga snob but I've been doing yoga for most of my life. And again, I'm 65 years old and I am a yoga therapist. So I've got a lot of advanced training. So again, I don't think I'm a yoga snob, but I can recognize if somebody is a newbie teacher. At the same time, I have had wonderful classes with newbie teachers and they may have been just fresh from getting their 200 hour training, but I really enjoyed what they had to share and their spirit. I think I feel that was, I feel like this is gonna, 
I'm amused that that's not more commonplace. Like for older, more experienced yoga teachers to go to complete newbies classes and be like, oh, and they actually, it's not even the most functional class, but still you see the person's personality and how earnest they are and how much they really want to do this. And that can be good. Like I've done it in meditation classes. Like people have tried to get me to like, like connect to other people in the room with my mind. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I'll start doing great. And they, they just like, it's their first class and they're like, okay, so I don't know if you've ever astral projected, but this is going to be a crazy experience for you. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I'll close my eyes now. Please don't hurt me. But it's still fun because at the end, like we learn something and then we end up talking and they're like, yeah, it was my first class. How did it go? So I guess I'm really glad you said that. And if someone has listened all like till this point, we'll have all your links in the description and your website is Deborah. I was going to, Spell your last name. Okay, DeborahCharns.com. C-H-A-R-N-E-S. But I guess maybe some people don't know how to spell Deborah. So I'm just going to put, it's all going to be there. I don't know. Because I'm realizing I'm saying Deb. It's not Deborah. It's Deborah. And there's another name that's like a quicker one. It's like Fast Deborah. Mine's like Deborah from the Bible. I wonder what the, what is the other one like just a confusing one to just okay I I guess if you wanted to say anything to the audience who listened this to till this point and they've heard us talking and me rambling what's the last thing you're saying before we stop recording I guess for everybody to be authentic and to find what resonates with themselves Ah, more authenticity where I don't think we can stop. I think we can, I can just, I'm going to press stop recording because I'll keep asking more questions. Thank you so much for doing this. And I, I'll send you more, I'll send you emails to schedule again and all the links and everything. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I can't believe we did it.